Know the past, shape the future. Welcome to the official podcast of the Air Force Historical Foundation. Quick programming note, we've divided the story into two parts, so make sure you subscribe now. On this episode, we're talking to Dr. Jan Davis, author, astronaut, and engineer. Her new book, Airborne, Two Generations in Flight, happened after a chance encounter when she discovered her father's World War II POW journal. Her father, Ben Smotherman, was a B-17 pilot flying missions over Europe. But after 21 months, he was shot down July of 1943 in Holland and spent the rest of the war in Stalag Luft III. Like so many others, he never talked about it. But thankfully, the one time he did, he shared his journal with his daughter Jan. Jan's book not only tells her father's story, but it explores the connections between his experiences and her own as an astronaut on the space shuttle. Here now is the continuation of our conversation with Dr. Jan Davis. As I said, I didn't know that much about his career, but as I delved into it, I realized that uh, not only genetics, I mean, both are a propensity to want to fly and be an engineer, and I'm a, 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 I'm not an artist like he was, but I, I have a creative bent that I think I got from him. This whole, this whole journey of discovery was... Uh, interesting because initially I was just going to write a book about him and really publish his wartime log. That was my goal, was to publish these incredible paintings and, and stories and, and pictures and, and just write a little bit about that. And then as I delved into it, I realized how much his career and mine had in common. Uh, and we did talk about that some when he was, when he was alive, especially when I learned to fly. When I started taking flying lessons, which was before I became an astronaut, I became a pilot, uh, he wrote a lot about flying and was giving me advice. And he even uh, wrote down how they flew on instruments back in that day, some of his training, that kind of thing. So, and the risk, the risk of, uh, he was really adamant about taking responsibility for any passengers that I had flying with me. And important that was and so that was great but uh that's really all i i had from him about um flying and his career so as i delved into it i realized that uh you know his training and my training as an astronaut and training to fly t-38 jets we had um had a lot in common i mean we both had to learn how to uh you know, handle parachutes and dinghy boats and risk and uh, using oxygen and, you know, those kinds of mechanical things, but also the the whole uh, camaraderie that we both experienced, um, the the training we we did as a team. You know, he had, a, he had 10 crew members on his B-17 and YB-40 airplanes, and I had a crew on my shuttle flights and, and how that works, how you work as a team, how you learn each other's duties and how you back each other up. And um, it was just really interesting to me how much we had in common, even though there were different careers separated by many years. Um, there was a lot that 
we had in common. We've talked a lot about Jan's father, but it's worth noting her mother's words had a great impact on both Jan and her father. Of course, the common thread was my mother, who, when I was selected to be an astronaut, she said, put God first in your country and go for it. And I'm pretty sure she probably told him that same thing when she sent him off to combat. And so thinking about that, again, she didn't talk about it much either, but I know since she's such a supporting, positive person who was always encouraging to me, even though she was probably scared to death, she was that way to him as well. And so I wrote about that too, you know, that, that common thread. As Jan's astronaut training accelerated, her father's health declined. But fortunately, she was able to see him one last time. One of the T-38 astronaut pilots and I flew over there to see him in the hospital. And so I came in the hospital with my flight suit on and my Air Force uh, pilot, who was an astronaut, also had his flight suit on. And, and my father was just so excited to, to see us in our flight suits but also to, to talk with someone who uh, was an Air Force pilot. And then, of course, you know, he and I talked a lot about what was going on getting ready for my mission because I was going to fly in a few months. So he did see me, uh, you know, and talk with me in that scenario. And um, that was that was really neat to uh, to be able to to see him. Um, see me as an astronaut and, and as a pilot myself. I want to stay focused here for just a second because I have to ask you, after all of these years as a scientist and as an engineer, you know, what are you most proud about during this uh, time as a, as a space explorer? You were even and I love this title. It, at one point at NASA, you were the director of human exploration, which just sounds <laughs> like something you know right out of right out of science fiction. But you've done this. I mean, this is on your resume. What are you most proud of? Well, um, that's that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I would say just the short answer would be flying in space. But I think uh, the longer answer is. Uh, working hard, uh, having a goal, having a dream, and not letting people deter me from that dream or that goal. Because, you know, especially when I was going to college as a, a woman in engineering, I, a lot of people told me that that's not a field for women. And I was going to Georgia Tech and people even said, well, that's a man's school, <laughs> which it almost was at that time. But you know, I persevered. And uh, when I was working on my doctorate, you know, it was uh, a struggle and uh, um, had some rocky roads. But again, just, just worked hard because I had that dream. I knew I had to, to get that degree to be an astronaut. And so I guess that's, you know, and then all the training and, and um, work that it took to, to become an astronaut. So I guess that's the thing I'm most proud of is that I... Um, 
I worked hard to achieve this dream, uh, overcame some obstacles, set my goal, and and uh, kept trying. I, I interviewed. Um, I didn't get selected the first time, and I didn't get selected the next uh, astronaut selection they had a year later. So it was the third time I applied when I was finally selected, and it would have been easy to give up and say, well, you know, I guess I'm, I'm not going to try this again, but I just kept trying to do things I thought might help, and, um, and, and then finally made it. And it was, it was worth all that work. It's just a beautiful uh, view of the Earth and uh, an incredible opportunity for me. Talk to us about Blastoff. What's that like? Riding that big rocket ship in the space shuttle <laughs> all the way into the heavens. I mean, what's that like? Yeah, the, the launch is a, a pretty dynamic experience, as you can imagine. But, uh, you know, you're laying on your back, and it's like a big push with a whole lot of vibration, a lot of noise. You know, so you're shaking and rattling and rolling, literally, uh, as you're being pushed from behind. And you experience initially about 2G, so twice your weight, you know, pushing up your back. And then as you accelerate, you, you go up to 3Gs. Um, and so... It's an experience. The solid rocket boosters are, are the, the most dynamic part of that part of the launch, and they stay on for about two minutes. So the first two minutes are pretty exciting. <laughs> and then uh, the engines stay on for another, the, the boosters drop off the space shuttle, and then the engines stay on for another six and a half minutes or so. Uh, and that's not quite as dynamic, but you're still, you know, rattling and rolling and accelerating. And so about eight and a half minutes, and then you're in uh, zero gravity. So uh, that's, that's a pretty wild ride. And they do try to prepare you for that. They they uh, had a centrifuge that simulated the launch Gs, and uh, what you're not, what you can't dream for is all the the vibration and the and the noise and and that kind of thing. So you do talk to people about it, but it's still pretty pretty surprising when it happens. Was there ever a moment on that first space mission? I mean, the, your father had just passed away. Mm -hmm. Where you're, you had a second to think, "Here I am, his daughter, and I'm leaving Earth's atmosphere." I mean, he was a B seventeen pilot, undoubtedly, uh, with with Harry missions that he flew back then, where he was worried. Was there ever a, a moment of introspection on that first flight where you thought about him and what that meant? Absolutely. I mean, I was I was disappointed he wasn't able to see it from the earth, uh, and I was glad I was able to see him just before my mission. But the introspection part was that I believed he did see it. You know, from where wherever he was in, in heaven, he he had a a great view of uh, the launch and me experiencing it. So I, I kind of felt that. Um, you know that connection that uh, that he really was there, uh, and he he could see it and experience what I saw, and uh, and then flying around the the Earth every hour and a half is one orbit. Um, I was flying over areas where he flew, uh, areas I had not been to. You know when he took his B seven, actually his YB forty, 
from from Florida over to England. He had to fly the Northern Atlantic route, so he he, saw, he went to Greenland and Iceland and and over to uh, to Scotland and then England. And so I flew over those places, and um, I knew he had been there and and East Anglia and England and Germany. So it was kind of interesting to to fly over those pretty quickly and realize, you know, that that he had been there and and what he did to get to to fly in combat. We need to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll finish our conversation with Dr. Jan Davis. Hello, I'm Dick Daso, Executive Director of the Air Force Historical Foundation. We're thrilled to launch our official podcast and hope you're enjoying it. But there's so much more to explore and enjoy as a member of the Foundation. Our morning release, This Day in Air and Space History, is available on most social media platforms and your email. The Foundation newsletter, the Raider Chronicles, the Journal of the AFHF, both document Foundation programs and take detailed looks at our service history. The Foundation's Fall Symposium and Museums Conference includes cutting-edge scholarship focusing on aviation and space history topics and amazing examinations of air and space museum exhibits and curation. I'd like to personally invite you to visit our website at afhistory.org and spend some time examining our programs, affiliations, publications, and archives. Once you do, I sincerely hope you'll join us. A basic digital membership is only $30 a year. As a nonprofit organization, AFHF depends on the support of our members, both in dues and donations. If you join before April 1st, you'll receive a copy of our 2023 Summer Special Journal, a full 164 pages focused on the 50-year anniversary of the U.S. exit from Vietnam. You can also watch the proceedings from the 2023 Vietnam Symposium by accessing our research page. Thanks for listening and join us today. Until next time, know the past, shape the future. Welcome back. Just a quick reminder, our conversation with Dr. Jan Davis has been divided into two episodes. So make sure you've subscribed to the podcast so you can go back and listen to the first one and also never miss any future ones. Here now is Dr. Jan Davis. You you told me a story and I just love this story. This is, you know, it's still the, the late 80s, but it's it's a time when, when the world was different and you're getting on this airliner and a pilot says something to you. You're sitting there and you're reading a, an Air and Space magazine. What, what, tell us the story, because it's a great story. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm pretty, um, pretty closed mouth when it comes to, to telling people that I was an astronaut. It just, you know, uh, is something that makes people think of you differently when, you, when they hear that. And it's kind of a, you know, a very you know, lofty, lofty perspective, which I just rather them interact with me as a regular person and not get into that. So I don't usually tell people I'm an astronaut unless somebody is condescending or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, so, yeah. a pilot might have an ego. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> Some do. Yeah. I mean, I'm a pilot. So. <laughs> Hang around long enough and I'll tell you, right? <laughs> I mean, so, so, so this guy, 
he just completely steps in it. Yeah, so I was on a commercial flight, and I'd been upgraded to first class, and he was walking by me to get to the cockpit, and I was reading this uh, very technical uh, aviation magazine, and he asked me what a woman like me was reading a magazine like that for, and I said, because I'm a pilot, and he goes, well, what do you fly? And I said, space shuttles. <laughs> he just, he just, he couldn't handle it. He just kept walking. Uh, and the flight attendant was was loving it, but anyway, I, I I can count on one hand the number of times I've done something like that. Today you have two grown children. You're a grandmother to four, and you are a mentor to many. Astrofemina is a program that you have started with with several other folks that is truly STEM outreach for girls. Uh, and you've seen this change over the years, and it's uh, it's something that you're a part of, and I and I know that you're proud of. When you sit down and you talk about this program with other people, how do these stories from the ongoing discoveries? We've talked about Hubble, but I mean, you were also involved with uh, Chandra, which is sending these X-ray beams deeper into space than we ever have before. And and there's still these ongoing discoveries. You're worried about your grandkids and your kids and, and making soccer games, but yet this contribution to humanity is still ongoing. How do these stories fit into all of that? Well, as I said, I when I was going into college and deciding a major and a, and a place to go to school, there was a, a lot of um, negativity about, you know, people's response to that, to me. And, uh, I'm, I was just stubborn enough to persevere and say, well, I am going to be an engineer. I am going to go to this school, even though it's for men. Um, but not all not all girls or what young women have that uh, perseverance to, to try it. They, they might just say, oh, okay, well, I guess I can't do that. I'll, you know. And the other thing is when I started working, I was one of the few women and in college, I was the only woman in my class usually, and I just uh, worked through that. But, you know, young women and girls sometimes need role models to to help them realize that it's possible. And I had a role model. You know, when I was working in the oil industry was when they selected the first women who would be astronauts in the United States on the space shuttle. And they they selected women who weren't military. I was not military. Women who were engineers and scientists and doctors. And then I realized that it was possible. So I know how important it is to see um, someone else doing what potentially you might want to do, another woman, uh, doing these things that you might not think are possible. So the nonprofit Astrofemina is really for paying it forward because those of us who who founded the organization, the nonprofit, realize how important it is to go out and talk with these girls, usually girls age fifth through eighth grade, because that's the age where girls either really like STEM or they decide they don't want to do it. Uh, and usually the reason they don't like it or think they can do it is because of external influences, because somebody told them they can't do it or because they see that everything in the media or whatever 
you know, as male in that field. And um, so we go out and encourage girls to pursue these STEM careers and, and provide role models for them. And we have over 100 members who go around the country um, talking to girls about STEM. And being able to do the work, I'm guessing, is part of Yes, mm-hmm. right, exactly. And what we do and how interesting and fun it is. I mean, some of the the people we have as members um, have fascinating careers in science or medicine or aerospace or they're astronauts. I mean, so um, great dynamic speakers who um, speak to these girls. We've had tremendous feedback. And quotes from the girls about, wow, I didn't think I could do that. Or I didn't really, you know, know that this career existed or that this was a possibility for me. And that's exactly what we want to do is to to put the idea in these girls' heads that, yes, they can do that. And this is how you do it. And um, so it's been very rewarding. We've, we've reached uh, over 24,000 girls since we started in uh, 2019. <laughs> And you said in the first episode, and I loved this, because it, 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 it really goes against a lot of the stereotypes that you see in the media and in the movies. But you said, when I showed up to NASA and they learned that I could do the work, mm-hmm. uh, that was all they needed. And, I, and I'm guessing that still holds true today. Is that what you're hearing and seeing is that, look, when you prove yourself as a, as a valid member of the team, that's all that's needed. But that's, that's, also, that's also tough if you're not hearing that day in and day out and i and i and i hear what you're saying about why this is important but does that still ring true well i think it's a little bit different now because fortunately uh at nasa and other places in the stem profession we have more women in leadership roles and management roles that um you know you know it makes it easier for a woman who's graduated from engineering school or a science um or technology to go to work at NASA and and be accepted right away. I don't think they necessarily have to prove themselves as much because that's been done with other women before them. Uh, And these women not only prove themselves from a technical standpoint, but also a leadership and management standpoint that these women can become, you know, a a NASA center director or, you know, we haven't had a, an administrator yet of NASA, but a deputy administrator has been a woman, and uh, we have one now. So I, I think it's a, it's a lot different now with so many more women graduating in these fields, although it's still only about 20% women in these uh, <clears throat> fields that, uh, that they have been given the opportunity to have these leadership roles and these high visibility roles. And uh, so I don't think it's as important, you know, to prove yourself uh, as a woman. I think probably any engineer, male or female, has to prove themselves to some extent when they go to work. But I think it's uh, it's much more uh, open and um, common for women to, to, to work in those technical fields. Let's change gears here real quick as we wrap everything up and talk about Airborne, the book that you've written about your father's experiences and your uh, your own personal experiences. Uh, your dad, who was such a, a, a pivotal figure, really, in your life, even though you, you were not in contact daily, 
uh, after it, after it, you know, just like so many families go through with divorce, and especially after the war that you talked about in the first episode. But your dad, Ben Smotherman, a, a B-17 pilot, a guy who showed up for the missions when there was, you know, less than the chance of winning a coin toss, uh, survivability of these things. I mean, this was a living hell that these folks flew through. Right. Yes. Uh, in the B-17. You've since been able to fly in, in an airplane much like the one that he flew in during the war, a B-17. Yes. And you've, you've written about all of this and how the similarities between your own career and his came together. I, I just want to know what the takeaway is on this, what these lessons learned are. If there's, if there's one that, is, that just stands out in your, own, uh, in your own mind after writing this and spending so much time with it, what, what do we want to take away about this, Dr. Davis? Yes, I, I did have the opportunity to fly in a B-17, which was emotional and exhilarating, both for me to be in the same airplane or like the airplane that, that he flew. And um, I think one thing that really made an impact on me when I flew in that plane was the element of risk. And I think the takeaway would be um, the risk that he faced flying into combat was very high early in the war before they had the, the fighter escorts that could escort them into enemy territory. And um, they basically, once they got into enemy territory, they were sitting ducks and the, the German fighters could um, shoot them down fairly easily. Um, so th there was that risk that he faced every time he climbed into an airplane to go into combat. And they... These young men did that every every day. You know, I mean, they didn't. He his flights were probably three or four days apart, but nevertheless, uh, he knew, you know, that he could die, but he didn't think about it. He knew he had a mission. He was focused on the mission. They woke up early in the morning, like three a.m., and and had breakfast and were briefed, and then they flew. And that was very similar to what what I went through flying the space shuttle. Um, we had the Challenger accident uh, when when I had my first flight in 1992. You know, of course, we knew the risk. And I think, you know, facing that risk, but knowing that you're committed to the mission and that you understand the risk, and he understood the risk, but that our mission and our commitment to completing that mission was more important to us than than the than the risk, so it was worth the risk in order to accomplish the mission. We were both serving our country uh, in different ways. I mean, I I am not going to say that flying in combat is the same risk as me flying the space shuttle, but that that element of risk we both had to deal with, and we both had to prepare for. We had to prepare our families for, and um, so I think that's. That's the common thread. That's the takeaway is that we understood the risk. We accepted the risk. We were committed to the mission. We were committing to serve our country. And um, and so that, that was um, a compelling thread that went through the book, which uh, is titled Airborne. The subtitle is Two Generations in Flight. So a father and a daughter each flying as a career and 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 taking this risk.
I did want to ask you if there's anything that you're really excited about in the future. The space and with, I mean, what, what do you sit back in uh, on your porch when you're drinking your coffee thinking about it? Well, um, I am excited about about the future of space. I like the idea of, you know, landing people on the moon again. And I'm excited about our young people. I mean, when I go out and speak to young people about my career and uh, encourage them in their careers, I have a lot of hope and faith in these people because <clears throat> they are very innovative uh, and very uh, passionate about what they're doing, which which I really like to see. And so I have a, a lot of faith in that and in what they're doing and in our space program and the innovations that we've had in the space program. You know, it's not all uh, government. We've had a lot of private industry uh, have flights and missions. We've got one coming up this week. So that's exciting as well. So I'm, when I, you know, contemplate sitting on the porch drinking coffee or whatever it's uh how thankful i am for the opportunities that i've had the opportunities that our country has given me uh, to fly in space but also you know to be educated and to to have a wonderful life and uh full of challenges and uh opportunities but nevertheless in the end i'm very thankful for for um, what I've done and for the opportunities that I've been given and that I've taken. So um, I'm blessed. I have, um, in fact, my husband and I were talking about this the other day, how fortunate we are to to, to be raised in, in families that um, believe in education and strong faith and hard work. And um, now that we're in retirement and enjoying um you know, the fruits of our labor that we've worked so hard for, uh, we're able to uh, enjoy our our life and our grandchildren. And, and uh, I'm very positive about the future of space and, and the, this generation that, uh, that will take us the next steps in our space program. Dr. Jan Davis, thanks for spending some time today with us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Be sure to purchase your copy of Airborne, Two Generations in Flight, from BallastBooks.com. And if you order directly from their website, Jan will be happy to personalize your copy. I'm Matt Jolly, and until next time, know the past, shape the future. Music.